Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Sometimes you get made an offer that is very difficult to refuse. But at the same time, we both really felt that we wanted to be a household name. We wanted to be able to offer these treatments everywhere. In part two of my chat with Dr. Philippa McCaffrey, the founder of Clear Skincare Clinics, and her partner, Alana Longes, they talk about the challenges in growing their business from that first small clinic to 45 clinics in Australia and New Zealand, and how they kept control as they scaled up the business, settling on a kind of hybrid business model of company-owned plus owner-manager clinics the pair talk about how they nurtured all their different partnerships, which ended up giving them freedom and also control. Philippa and Alana shed light on their own unique and successful partnership, which really began as boss and employee, but quickly developed into mentor and mentee status, and then full partnership. And they don't shy away from discussing the ups and downs and considerable stresses of building a business from the ground up, plus that bittersweet decision to sell their business baby. I hope you enjoy part two of my chat with Dr. Philippa McCaffrey and Alana Longes. How did you scale up and how did you manage the scale up? Hiring people, making sure the standards are still high. Was was scale up really challenging given you seem to have no problem getting customers, but often then it's managing that? Well, I think the biggest thing was it really was Alana and I and another woman that had been originally a, a laser therapist at Bondi Junction, who Alana convinced to kind of stay on really as an operations manager. And then I had had a manager at Edgecliff that expressed some interest in HR. So the two of them kind of became the day-to-day managers because meanwhile, Alana kept having babies and wanted to be a mother, didn't want to be, you know, into the, the clinic in, all the time, into the, into the creche and see you later. So so there I, were four of you. There were four of us, but also I think it was, there were a lot of ups and downs. I mean, we had some real challenges in during that time with like. um, partners and- Okay, and so how, that's how, we grew. That's how, how did we grew. the business model so, work? So basically we ended up establishing what Phil was calling a little head office and that was managing the, the clinics. But what was missing, the clinics were running from head office. We could still go visit frequently. We were very attached to the girls. We had a real relationship with them. So when we wanted to go interstate, we really needed someone like us, like an owner- to sort of help us grow that. And that's how we grew it. We found yeah. a fantastic girl in Melbourne. Yes. And then I had a very good friend in WA. And did yeah. they become owners? So and what how we much? did, we sold them a, a minority share. Like in the, 10% or um, I think 20%? Stephan- or? I think there was Stephanie owned, I um, can't exactly off the top of my head, but around yeah. that. Different partners we gave different equity to based on their experience, what they were bringing, you know, so anywhere so up to 40%, right. but really most of them were sort of up to 20%. There was a handful of clinics that we gave a little bit more to and not necessarily all of them. So um, so it wasn't really a franchise model. No. no. It was, it, Company we owned it, and owner-manager. So we kept control. So when it didn't work out with one of our 
minority shareholders, you know, it was easy for them to walk away and because they didn't have majority share, we sort of had in our contract, it was a fixed buy-in, buy-out. Yep. So they bought in for the same amount that, you know, that they'd buy out for. So they could feel they could walk away easily. You know, it wasn't like you had to get, it wasn't a complicated process basically. And that's sort of what I've found, you know, with growing is you've got to keep it as simple as possible when you're bringing people in. And really for us, it was about keeping control as well. And so, was it hard to keep control? No, because um, the the thing is the the natural pull for us to find owners in were beauty therapists, right? And generally, beauty therapists don't have any money, so they only could ever buy small chunks. And in fact, Alana came up with a scheme where we actually funded them into the clinics, like the real superstars. In fact, our, our highest performing clinics being Bendigo, would you believe? And in New Zealand, they were both therapists who stuck their hands up saying, we want to have clinics, but didn't have any money. So we funded both of them into their clinics. And really the rate limiting problem for us was finding these girls because most girls they just want to come to work and go home. They don't want to have a headache of managing other staff. They don't want to have the headache and responsibility of managing a clinic. That was our biggest problem. We just, if we could have cloned some of these girls, we could have expanded worldwide. It was really the problem was finding people on the ground. And what we found as we got bigger was that it was really hard to run these clinics under management. Every now and again, we had a our clinic in Mooney Ponds. We had a fantastic manager and it was super successful. But for that one, we had probably another 10 under management with a revolving door of managers. Well, some clinics worked under management and then just some you Meaning found. Meaning no, no other owners, no just No other you. owners. And yeah. over 50% of the clinics were under management. So, but they are a lot obviously harder to run when you've got an owner sitting in it all day it does become easy to run. But still, the clinics under management were still profitable and, you know, some of them are extremely profitable. But we found the ones that had a managing partner in them when we first opened them would take off very quickly and end up being sort of the star performing clinics. So, you know, we had a hybrid, you know, some under management worked and then sometimes we needed managing partners. So we ended up having 14 partners, but we had 45 clinics and some of the, a few of the partners so had the shares. So the rest, 14 you know. only, did you have uh, no, so owner managers in there? So and some then... of them had a share in a number of sites. Oh, I see. Yes. So we had sort of some had a handful of shares yeah. in, in a number of the sites and sort of oversee that region, if you'd like to call it that. Okay. So yeah. really in what, 19 years, is my maths right? In 19 years, you expanded from one, one. clinic, the first you started in Edgecliff in Sydney's East, to 45 yep. by the middle of 2018. Yep. yep. So before we get to the middle of 2018, because there was a massive change in the business then, what do you think, Philippa, has been the most important thing in growing this organisation? Well, look, I think there's absolutely no doubt that we wouldn't have ended up with that number of clinics if I hadn't had Alana to really think about all of the issues of scale, which are, you know, systems-based predominantly. Training. Training. One. And that was a big thing that happened after 2012 
is we had had trainers who we thought were doing a good job and we realised that, you know, they they weren't doing the job that they needed to do. And Alana actually brought in somebody who had had a lot of experience in implementing training systems and we got a very good internet-based training platform. And that was a huge job to take the training, put it onto that platform and then actually make sure that the staff were doing the training that they needed to do the job. And I think we were really lucky with some of the people that we had along the way that really, you know, went above and beyond in terms of implementing systems. And then I think another huge step was when Alana's husband, Simon, came on board. So he'd been a mergers and acquisitions He worked in transaction services at KPMG. KPMG. But a chartered accountant, you know, really understood the back end of of a business as well. So he was just a huge, you know. So what did he add? He restructured. Yes. So what had been basically 40-something separate entities, he was able to restructure that into a business that was saleable. So we weren't saleable when he came and not that we were thinking of selling, but I guess it was kind of in the back of everyone's mind that at some point we might get approached. So Simon immediately saw that it would be really hard for someone to buy what we had. And so there Mm. were a lot of discussions both with our accountant and with some external lawyers and what can we do within our existing management structure to make this something that someone could actually buy. So he did a lot of work on that. I think having someone who was so experienced from a financial point of view running the financial side of the business is always a huge, huge huge relief. Yes. And then, of course, Tony, which we haven't mentioned Tony's role because the horrible thing when you're in small business is that even when you've been running your business successfully for, you know, 15 years, the bank still treats you like you're about to go out of business. And we had businesses that were capital heavy up front, so fit-outs, leasing of equipment, but over time that gets paid down and and the businesses didn't have a heavy, heavy capital expense, but we needed someone who was prepared to fund that kind of startup for each individual clinic. And Tony took on that role with us really with early on clinic. with each clinic. No, not with every clinic. It was with a handful of clinics where we wanted to grow and we needed some funding. He would do leases for us, or equipment leasing, but we were paying him 8% yeah. on the leases. You <laughs> he know? was doing well. <laughs> so what, what it enabled, what, what one thing he enabled us to do was when I needed money, and I wanted access to it, is I could get it very quickly from him, even though I'd pay the same rate, probably a percent more than the bank, you know, because the banks, it was very hard. So, so do you really- think it was it just on this issue about banks, do you think it was the fact that you were young women or do you think it was more just, you know, they're the horrib- finances, they're, they're very risk averse <clears throat> about small they business? They kept trying to push us into business banking and I had such a terrible experience with business banking when I was at that hospital. I wanted to stay in the private bank 
that was a you know very controversial at the time. I remember my banker had to get special permission to allow my business to remain in private banking. It was just they were just a nightmare. Well, yeah. I think they just had all these rules, you know, which rules. which keeps people safe and keeps the banking sure. rules safe. And lots of people have their, I think everyone has their money with banks, yeah, so you want to make sure there's lots of rules. But you know, we would get to a certain limit with what we were allowed to borrow from the bank, and then it made it very hard to get money anywhere else. And, you know, they wanted sort of you to sign over everything yeah, to them. Like your, your house, your children, your house, you know. all your possessions, <laughs> your mother. You know, they really, they, they take so much security and it's ridiculous. So having Tony in the business. Tony meaning your dad. My dad, he would, you know, give us a, a deal. He'd, I'd be able to do deals with him to keep us growing. Like I said, it was, you know, so that's sometimes a huge I was paying, help too, huge even help. though you were paying huge. your way. yes. Yeah. yeah, it was just almost like a, a line of credit. Yeah, because the only other lines of credit you can get, you're going to be paying maybe five or six percent higher than the bank. Yeah, and that becomes a burden, and that's why businesses go out of business because mm. they're having to pay so much money for their borrowings that it's just unaffordable. So we were very lucky from yeah. that point of view. And, and Alana sense, was very good at doing deals. I with did her lots dad. of deals with him, and and he was involved <laughs> in some of the clinics as well. So I'd bring him into the clinics where, you know, we didn't have a managing partner on the ground, and I knew there was great potential there, and he would come in as a minority shareholder in yeah. some of those clinics. Because I guess in in the clinics you can't actually it can't really be cash flow funded because you need so much money at the at the beginning yeah, yeah. to, as you say, do the fit out of these. Gorgeous sort of clinics at street level now, so you had mm. to attract people in, yes, and machines and equipment and all that sort of thing. That's right. Did you ever come close to fails? Um, no, we didn't. We did have to shut one clinic. One clinic <laughs> that was my <laughs> was my folly, and that was a clinic that was in Tweed Heads, and we did it that because we thought. You know, we're right on the border. We'll attract that kind of southern Gold Coast population. They didn't come. We had staff who were just stealing from us. And it was, it was a bit doomed. It was a bit sad. It was quite a sweet little clinic. But, it, and then again, that is, that's kind of the worst case scenario for small business where you have people who don't do the right thing and a business plan that doesn't pan out. There are now competitors in Tweed Heads. I don't. I. I, I think. I wish them good some, luck. Yeah. No. I think <laughs> they'll difficult. be fine now. I think the whole yeah. industry is a lot more ahead of the game. But we definitely had tough times. We were never. Oh my gosh. We have to shut ever. Mm. But definitely, we had periods where you know we had to dig deep and re-strategize and come up with different marketing, and the team weren't working. And I remember, you know, was- we had really stressful hair pullout moments where we both, you know, like you know, wanted to there cry. Was, there was so. So, what did you do to instead of crying, instead yes. of closing the door? How did you work through that, and how important is that for a founder? Well, I'm an eternal optimist, so you know, I really, really believed that every business, even Tweed Heads, we could have made to work. I mean, I think I was on the ground a lot. So I picked all the sites. So I'd travel around and find sites. And I really wouldn't open a site unless I really believed in it. It was just about finding, re-looking at the team, re-looking at different strategies. How do you market differently? And, you know, coming up with solutions and trying lots of 
trying, you know, you know, Philippa and I used to just try sometimes a million different things. We found something that worked. And when you found something that worked, you'd hone in on it and really drive that strategy or, you know, so it was just really a lot of hard work, persistence, loyalty to each other, loyalty to the business. We were really lucky. Like the big reason I think we had great success was we had an incredible team with us. Some of these girls stayed with us and they're still in the business and they're just such an asset to clear skincare clinics. But I had girls that I started with, you know, that were there with me for, I was in the business for 15 years before we sold and they were there for 13 or 14, you know, and, and finding those girls, you know, and that's what made the businesses work a lot of the time. So just determination, you know, and really belief, absolute belief in what we were doing. And what I, do you th- I can remember, and this is kind of fairly early on, but I think it was, I'm just trying to think exactly which year it was, but there was a time when I think someone might have been on maternity leave and we thought that things were being done that weren't being done. And literally Alana and I are in my office, on the computer, opening up every book, you know, consolidating appointments. You had to be really, really hands-on. You had to know the business inside out. You had to be able to walk into a clinic and fix it. You couldn't be this hands-off kind of, oh, I'm up, I'm up here kind of manager. You had to be down and dirty. Yeah, and just having the respect for your team. You know, I I was always on the same level as the team. You know, I would walk in and give them more as much respect as they would give me. You know, I realized that the team on the ground is what made that business work, you know, and the partners that we had and, you know, I was never their boss. It was like a bit of a family business. You know, I think we never had any partners leave. We had one leave, I think two in the end, in 15 years, you know. So we had this wonderful relationship with the girls that work for us. You know, like Philip said, we we would, I would do anything. I used to, we all used to answer the phones until sort of, you know, six or seven years ago. Like I'd pick up the phone if it was ringing and take an appointment. And I think, you know, I used to, every Sunday night, I'd sit through every appointment book and look at it myself and then speak to the managers and speak to the team. So it was probably having that sort of culture as well, I think really helped us, you know. So what do you think was the most challenging part, Philippa, in the scale up and growing? Oh, definitely staff. I think finding finding the right people, training them. I always say to the girls, it's like dating. You know, you, you start off really optimistic. I think it's going to work. But, you know, it's only when you've been on a few dates that you know whether or not it's going to work. And that's the other thing is you invest so much in someone, taking them on, because it wasn't like people could come from somewhere else and know what we did. We had to really, we had to really retrain people because we had to get rid of their bad habits and get them in the good habits. So we were investing really heavily in our staff. And in, if someone doesn't work out, it's a huge cost. Yeah. Alana, what would you say was the most challenging part of, of growing this business? Probably. It's really interesting. Probably when I think about it, like there was such highs, but then such stressful periods. So for me, you know, managing that stress of the responsibility of running all those businesses and having those girls and that team on the ground and then having, I had four kids or at the time three, I had four when I sold my fourth when I sold the business. So it was probably you know, the stress of it, you know, because it does stop with you. The If that business 
fails to succeed, ultimately that was my responsibility to make sure it did. And and, and all those other people's livelihood too. Yes. Does that sort of, is yeah. that part of the equation? And I think I thrived on that. You know, I loved it and I loved what I did. I go into work with a smile on my face every day. I absolutely loved it. But it was also, there were days when it was really stressful and really hard and I wouldn't sleep, you know, you know, sometimes for nights on end. And, you know, you've just got to pull yourself together and, and come up with solutions. I'd say the stress was probably the most challenging in terms of running the business, definitely team, you know, where you had team that didn't work out or that left, but we're really good at keeping t- staff as well. So, and that's the thing for me, you know, I'm human, I make mistakes. My philosophy was everyone's human, everyone makes mistakes. Sometimes you need to coach people through it and stand by them. And we were really forgiving business like that. So, if you've got someone, you know, we'd always look at the clinic's performance and we'd say, oh, you know, Mossman's not having a good, a good period at the moment. And I go, what's going on with the team in there? Oh, she's, you know, the manager's broken up with a boyfriend. I'd be like, great. Okay. We know. <laughs> we <laughs> know. to everyone, you know, right? And, exactly. And suddenly you know the reason. You know the reason. And then, okay, let's, what support are we giving her to sort of help with that and cope with that and how are we there for her? And, you know, all that sort of business, you know? So I'd say a lot of it was the team. And then the stress and then having to evolve and strategies. I don't know. I, all of it was wonderful and all of it in a way was hard, you know. So anyway, that answers <laughs> it. It's a bit of a vague answer for anyone listening. <laughs> Not at all. Let's skip forward to mid-2018 Philippa and Alana, you decided to sell and you sold to a, a very big conglomerate, Australian Pharmaceutical Industries. What led you to that point? Why them? Why sell? You say you love the business, Alana. Why would you walk away? So we probably started getting approached by private equity companies, I'm thinking end of 2016. One of our competitors had actually been bought by private equity in 2013, and they sold again. This was Laser Clinics Clinics Australia. So they sold again, and there was a big auction to buy them. And that was mid-2017, and... And I remember it was written up in the financial review that API were one of the bidders. And I remember reading it and thinking, I want to be bought by API, <laughs> by laser clinics. <laughs> and as it turned out, their bid was conditional. So they ended up selling to KKR, which is a big international private equity company. So towards the end of 2017, API approached us. Why did you want to sell? Because, Philippa, this had been your baby that you'd grown and uh, developed and put everything on the line for, no doubt. Look, there was a massive part of me that didn't want to sell. I particularly didn't want to sell my product business. Sometimes you get offered or made an offer that is very difficult to refuse. I had, I thought it was 18 business partners in the end. Anyway, we had a lot of business partners who... You know, I was a director of, of all the companies. I had to think about them as much as, as myself or Alana. And also I think we realised that 
actually another company had sold, another one of our competitors had sold. So we started to think that it wasn't going to be a very level playing field. It had had not been a level playing field for that four years with laser clinics because they had this massive amount of money behind them. And, you know, it, it, it got quite tough, the marketplace. And having been in this, you know, dream run, it suddenly became a tough, as, you know, you get the maturing of businesses, it becomes much more competitive, much tougher. And we could see that it was not going to be an easy road going forward for us. But at the same time, we both really felt that we wanted to be a household name. We wanted to be able to offer these treatments everywhere. And ultimately, we realized that we needed a partner with very deep pockets to realize the dream. So it's bittersweet. It's really bittersweet to sell because obviously it's your dream, but at the same time, you're not in, you're not in control of the dream anymore. But I think given everything that's happened, it probably was the right thing for us to do. Alana, how did you see the sale and and why you would want to leave a business that all yes. sort of, sorry, sell a business that you loved going into every day? I think it was time. You know, Philip is right. I think we realised to go to that next level, you know, and compete, which we needed to, you know, because we have such an incredible offering and it's such, there's such wonderful businesses and they offer such a service to those communities that we'd need a lot of money to do it. And we had a lot of private equity approaching us, huge, like for years leading up to when we actually sold. And we didn't want to go into private equity. We didn't want someone standing over us saying, right, we need to make this, we need to make this. That wasn't what our, it, what, how we ran our business. You know, we sort of, we didn't have those pressures on us. We put enough pressure on ourselves, alone having someone standing over us. So when API approached us, it was a very different proposition. You know, they had this wonderful female-based business, Priceline, that was really very well lined up to sort of what we're offering culture-wise. You know, Priceline offers, you know, affordable cosmetics. It's a real female-based brand. It's a very nurturing business. You know, um, when we met Richard Vincent, he was a lovely, wonderful CEO and really reassured us that our business is lined up together. And we felt it was in safe hands with them. And what they could do was going to be very difficult for us to do without, you know, huge amounts of money behind us. We weren't willing to do that with private equity at the time. So we sort of knew. I mean, the business, even though the competition was tough, we were still growing, really, and our books were becoming, you know, we were extremely profitable, successful business, and it was hard to walk away. But, you know, we walked away for the only price we were willing to accept as well. So I think that was sort of, you know... It worked out for everyone yeah. in the end. So in, in the end, just briefly really about the sale, it was they bought in tranches. So it, they're buying everything. But at this stage, what, two years on? This was mid-2018. Two years on, they own? 75% 75% now, yes. all the product business. And then yep. in another year, they'll own 100%. Less than a year, another nine months, they'll own 100%. And I think they're now open over 60 clinics. So they have over 60 clinics now. So they're really growing it. And, you know, it's really exciting for the business. Yeah, it's hugely no, it's exciting. Extraordinary. And I mean, you know, to to see you guys get 
almost $150 million for this business that you'd grown up. I mean, yes, you've got other business owners and things like that, but that's a great result, right? <laughs> yep. Wasn't, wasn't quite $150 no, million. No, I wish it was. Almost. <laughs> 147 yeah. wasn't no, it? No, it was 127 Right. Yeah. And then is yeah. there an, another little possibility of something or – no. Okay. No, I think you know there was something that was there, but the reality is, is that we weren't running it anymore. So, you know, that was always sort of yeah. So you're still involved, but you're not running it. Obviously, API is we're there, we're contracted to them, so we're supporting the team. It's really actually wonderful. A lot of the team that worked with us is still there, and you know, I'd say ninety five percent of them. Are still there, which is fantastic. So, you know, that business is in great hands with them as well and with the API team. So, we just contracted the business. We were doing a lot more sort of obviously initially when we sold, I was really for the first 12 months almost working at the same capacity as I was before we sold. And then over time, that's dwindled down. So, Which is to be expected, yeah, I guess. Absolutely. Would it be fair to say that as founders, as founder and, and then co-founder Alana, it's tricky being then involved in the giant conglomerate that really is responsible for your business now? Um, so it's, it's a transfer of intellectual property. Yes. So that's really, I guess, there were two businesses. There was the product business and the clinics business. The clinics business obviously was a much bigger business than the products business. But the difference was that the clinics business had documented a lot of its intellectual property. And so that was a matter of transitioning management, whereas for the product business, that needed a lot of documentation and transfer of knowledge. I mean, we were still hand-making product, so, you know, it was a big deal to transit that business. But, you know, they've, they've done that. It's now housed in one of API's distribution centres and still with two of the original staff. So I think the thing that is key is really keeping the people because the people made the business. Yeah. And have they been able to do that yeah. so far? Well, that's yeah. a great testament yeah. to both you and them, I guess, that it's continued. Can we just step right back, Alana? You said, you know, your dad probably steeped a kind of entrepreneurialism in you, maybe as a young person or a kid around the dinner table. Philippa, did you come from a family of entrepreneurs? No. Did you or were you thinking business from a young age? You were you were training as a doc, you know, know. you trained as a doctor and you were working as a doctor and an administrator. Look, in a way, I kind of wish I had had Alana's confidence, you know, that I had been able to do what I did in my 40s, in my 20s. But I came from a very conservative household. My mother, my mother had a good business head though. I mean, she, she was probably the one that I got the kind of, that gene of, of looking for things. And she was, she was the supporter. I mean, she actually funded me into the business. How so? How so? Well, my partner at the time wouldn't allow me to use the redraw on our mortgage 
at the last minute. And I remember I called my mum in tears saying, I want to buy this business. I don't have any money. And she said, how much do you want, darling? You know, and she just, she again, like Alana's father, she had 100% faith in me that it was a good thing to do. And I was able to pay her back within 12 months, which was great. But you need those people. You need those people who trust and believe in you. And so it wasn't sort of massive inherited wealth that no, she didn't care about. No, you did pay no, her back she, the money. She and literally, you know, she borrowed the money and gave it to me. It's amazing, amazing. But I think, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I don't know so where it comes from. So you didn't necessarily, yeah, talk about it around the dinner table. No, no. It was just, look, I think I've always had a kind of curious mind. And I think doing this, even though my original plan was just to have my little, well, you know, women's health practice within this beauty clinic, it became very obvious to me very quickly that there was something else that needed to be done. And then I had to teach myself and I had to learn how to do it. And I think that that training that you get in, in, in medicine, but probably more importantly in, in my Master of Public Health where I actually got trained in the scientific method, which you don't get trained in as an undergraduate, which is a huge mistake. But the scientific method teaches you to work out what is actually going on. And as part of that, you've got to work out what are actually factors that appear to be important but aren't. And the factors that are actually causing the thing to happen. So it's learning about, you know, significance and and confounders and all those things that researchers do. And so it was the most incredible training for me to go into what I ended up doing because, as I said, you know, I was constantly reading studies that said, you know, X does Y and I'd, I'd trial it and it didn't do Y at all, didn't do anything. So it was that, you know, persistence and I am a bit of a dog with a bone you know I and I remember when I worked in (laughs) for the private hospital company which no longer exists I actually had a talking to with the managing director and he said you know you've just got to learn to let go and not be so persistent and it was the worst advice I ever got because it's that persistence really that has meant the difference between having a business and not having a business. You know, it really was the thing that I think more than anything else was the was the secret sauce for me. Even in that hospital career, you were a single mum. How did you make that work? You know, that's persistence too, isn't it? <laughs> Look, I had a I had a wonderful child who was who was very easy and, and made made it very easy for me to work. And then I had another child shortly before I bought the first laser business. And look, it was really tough on her that I was a full-time, you know, working mum. And that's just the difference in children. And, and I remember for Alana, you know, she, in a way, I wish I'd been like Alana and gone, no, I've got to, you know, I've got to do the mum thing as well. But there's just, you run out of hours in the day. And, you know, Alana used to do all her work at night after the, her babies had gone to bed. And, and I remember one weekend, because we used to talk every day, you know, and because she wasn't physically often in the office, we did a lot of managing and talking on the phone. 
And I remember it was a Sunday and we were talking away and Alana was pregnant. And and then I just said to her, where are you? And she said, oh, I'm in the hospital. <laughs> I said, have you had the baby? She said, yeah, I had the baby last oh. night. <laughs> was this was baby a, number one? Yeah. This was number oh, three. I yeah, think. that you were so blasé by that yeah. stage. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's, a, it's becoming – you know, I think maybe I was just ahead of my you time. You were ahead of your time. You know, yeah. whereas Philip, you say, I don't don't know how this is going to work with you not being in the office. And I'm like, <laughs> Philip, I work harder than anyone else I know. <laughs> you know, I would work, when my kids would go to bed, I'd work from seven till midnight. You know, I was on the phone all the time and I was always trying to be present with my kids. But as soon as they're out of my my Immediate, area and someone else, yeah. you know, I was on the phone and working. And working wasn't for me, it wasn't nine to five. It was, you know, really any whatever needed to happen, I was there and would make it happen sort of seven days a week from the minute I woke up till I went to bed. If I didn't have my kids, I was working. And I think, I mean, that's probably, you don't need to be like that to work from home now, but you can be more flexible. And that's what I had, I had a flexible working arrangement and Philippa fully supported that. I think if I hadn't gotten the clinics to work, and do that, that would have been different. Yes. You know, if the clinic started she might losing have been money, a bit tougher on you. she would have been. And she was still pretty tough on me. I mean, Philippa really, I was only 24 when I started working for her, 25 when I opened my the first my first clinic with her. She was my mentor. So, you know, I still had to, you know, do all the right things and make sure the business was profitable and everything was going well. And if it wasn't, that's when she'd say, well, I don't know if you're in the office enough, you know. So, <laughs> and I'd have to really turn things around and earn my right to be able to work from home really 50% of the time. I was 50% of the time from home, 50% in the office. Yeah. So, But did you always know as a kid or a teenager I that think you I were going to be in business? Yeah, I think so. I think even some of my my oldest girlfriends that I've known as a kid, I'd sit there and they'd like, you know, I'd say, oh, you know, I had this idea to do this business. So I wonder how that person got that business to work. I think even before I even knew it, you know, I think that I was probably the way I, I think you know, I would have always ended up with some business. You know, I even think about businesses now. Oh, wow, look, if you did this and this, what could you do? And But, you know, Philippa had the product and the treatments and then she had that drive to keep improving our offering, you know, which kept us so relevant and our clients so engaged with us. And, you know, I was so lucky to have met her and she nurtured me and mentored me until I was really ready to run it. And I really ran it probably for the last five years. I was running it with a head office team. But Philip would keep filtering me these incredible new treatments and products. <laughs> I'm like, Philip, what's next? You know? So it was a really exciting partnership. And, you know, was a wonderful it was a wonderful business to be a part of for 15 years I just I couldn't I can't tell you how exciting and challenging and fulfilling it was I'm asking a lot of my guests this and they can just be relatively short answers if you like Philippa what do you think is the main ingredient in starting and growing a business like clear skin care well I I think if you love what you do, it makes it really easy. And we all loved what we did. And I think if you have that ability somehow to, you know, to marry up what you enjoy with what you actually can make a living from, that's probably the key. And I mean, medicine's really tough. It's, it's a tough gig 
because a lot of the time you're dealing with people who are really sick, you're dealing with people who are in pain, you're dealing with people who are dying. I found that part of medicine really, really hard and I think that's why I ended up as an administrator and not a hands-on clinician and I think the really nice part about the medicine that we were doing was that it was, you know, our clients were healthy, they were happy, they were, you know, they weren't dying. <laughs> it was just a really nice part of medicine to be working in. Well, I guess you saw material differences too in their yeah. skin and therefore yeah. in their lives. Yeah. And even, you know, it's it's kind of touched me within my own family. And, you know, I have a niece who had terrible, terrible, terrible skin. And she literally used to walk around with her head down and her hair over her face. And she didn't like being in photos. And, you know, I fixed her skin and the head's up high and she's just had a baby and she's so beautiful and it's gorgeous. Oh. It's just really wonderful to be able to achieve that for people. Alana, what would you say, main ingredient? In yeah, so Philippa hit the nail on the head. You've got to love what you're doing, but also you've got to have something you really believe in. So, you know, when, you know, the treatments we were offering, I've really believed that was something that everyone would want, you know, that women would want, that there was a real market there for it. So having that belief and then sort of loving what you do, you know, and then the third thing would be on that. So believing obviously in in the product you're offering or the treatment or the service or whatever you've got and then having someone to help enable you to do it. So you've got to have money to be able to do it, obviously. So we were really lucky you know, we grew organically for a while, but to take it to that bigger level, we had to have someone who was who would help fund us, and that was that was my father. Yeah. What are you obsessed about at the moment, Philippa? Be it a film, a a book, a, an issue. I am a bit obsessed about what's happening with women and and you know the abuse of women in relationships, and I think there's a real change happening in the world, and obviously the whole COVID thing and. There are even advertisements now on the television regularly by the government saying, you know, you shouldn't have to put up with this treatment. And I think there has to be a real change in the way that we as a society teach men, teach boys how to interact with women. And, you know, I think the laws have to change. I think they're just like you can change. We changed drink driving. We changed seatbelts. You know, people don't like change, but I think that there has to be a new way that we treat each other as human beings in society. I think there's too much tolerance of bad behaviour. Alana, you obsessed about something at the moment? Oh, for me, I think having four children and running clear skincare for Amazing. 15 years. Amazing, yeah, <laughs> for a start. Is it's trying to slow down and sort of rebalance a little bit. So that's probably been, you know, just coming off that adrenaline, probably lived on for 15 years and taking a step back and, you know, appreciating and, and spending time with my kids that isn't, you know, where I sort of preoccupied or stressed with something else going on. So giving them my full focus and attention for a period and, you know, then discovering, you know, I've just turned 40, you know, what the next sort of chapter brings. So, you know, that's sort of not as deep an answer as like <laughs> <No>. <laughs> at the moment. But, um, Equally important. Yes. What's the biggest thing you've learned on this startup journey, this entrepreneurial journey? You know, to believe in myself and what I was capable of doing. You know, I've learned that if you really put your mind to something, you can do it, you can achieve it. So, 
you know, is maybe self-belief and just anyone else that's looking to do that, you know, have that belief. And if you believe in what you're doing and you're passionate and you love it, you know, really give it. You know, there were so many people that were held back by maybe people around them or their own doubts within themselves. So, you know, that if you believe in yourself and back yourself and have just, you can go for it. Mm. Philippa, what's the... Yeah, look, I think, I also think there's a huge element of luck and that's just the luck of the fact that we live in Australia we live you know in a in we're not war torn we're educated there's so much opportunity and i think and it's kind of similar to what alana's saying i think there is so much opportunity if people just go for it back themselves and you know you you are going to fall down but you get back up again so is that what you would say to young people who say to you, I want to do what you did, I want to be an entrepreneur? Is that the sort of advice you'd give them? They're so interesting. They're so different. I've got a millennial. I think they have more balance in their lives in their 20s than I have in my life in my 60s. And that's a plus and a minus because I think you have to work really hard to get ahead. And I know that sounds, you know, very cliched, but it is true. It just doesn't happen. And I think that ability to work really hard and and be very focused and not, not give up, that's a gift. That's not something that comes naturally to people. And I think with all the training in the world, there are people who just won't be able to do that. But then there's a lot of people that will. And I don't know. Is there a school for this? I don't know. I mean, Alana, to me, she's, I actually came to the conclusion towards the end of, of, of owning the business that, that these girls were like gold. It's like I had mined and I'd found little tiny pieces of gold. Your therapists and your beauty owners. The, and- these owners and partners, you know, they're just rare. There's not a line of them out the door. They're really, really, really hard to find and incredibly special. So I think it is that combination of, of finding the people because you can't do it on your own. And a lot of people are scared about having a partner or, you know, having staff. The number of people that said to me, oh, how do you have all those staff? Oh, my God, I don't want these staff. I don't want the problems. And I think people put up all those barriers, but it, you actually can't do it unless – you have an army of people to do it with. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you both. Dr. Philippa McCaffrey, Alana Longes, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thanks, Helen. Thank you for having us. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.